I'm Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Today, my guest is Professor Pamela Newkirk, award-winning journalist, professor at NYU, and author of the recently published book, Diversity, Inc., The Failed Promise of a Billion-Dollar Business. Welcome. Thank you. To begin, I'm wondering if you could explain how the call for greater diversity and inclusion became a billion-dollar business. Yeah, for so uh, to, to start with, um, the, the reason why I wrote this book is because throughout my career, both in daily journalism and then for the past 25 years on the faculty of New York University, diversity has been sort of a preoccupation both in the news industry and in the academy. And yet, for all of the talk about diversity and for all of the consultants and diversity czars and training programs and climate surveys and on and on, um, the billions of dollars that are spent on diversity efforts, the needle on racial diversity in most elite institutions has barely moved um, over the past uh, three, four decades. So I wanted to look at that tension between all of the billions expended on diversity and the lack of diversity (laughs) in in most of these elite uh, institutions. And that includes, of course, the news media and uh, universities, colleges, uh, film, fashion, Hollywood, you name it, uh, diversity is, is, is really not a reality in most institutions in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that most of these institutions, both public, private, you mentioned media, also educational mm-hmm. institutions, mm-hmm. recognize that there's a problem. Right. And and the thing that's that I found really striking is that the institutions or the fields that are considered the most progressive, um, news media, higher ed, film, fashion, are the least diverse. <laughs> and the most diverse are is corporate America. So <laughs> that was that was oh. probably one of the most surprising findings. I'm curious, what is it that people see as the problem? And I, I'm wondering also if that defines what what solutions are, are proposed. I mean, corporations must recognize that if they don't have a diverse workforce, that is actually a problem for the growth of business. Right. Do they yeah, recognize they, that? I, I think so. I think they see it more as a bottom line issue. And of course, because corporate America um, has far more jobs than most elite institutions have. They have they have more jobs to fill. They have more spaces to fill. So they have to be a lot more competitive, and um, that's why they they end up having more diversity. So and could, that's not to say they don't have a problem too. Mm-hmm, but corporate mm-hmm. America is far more diverse than say. Um, most colleges and universities or the news media or publishing or all of these other fields. So what happens in one of these diversity programs typically? Well, um, one of the things that uh, companies spend millions of dollars on each year is diversity training. And um, many have mandatory diversity training. And 
just about every major study uh, over in recent years, inc- including a pretty influential one done by um, Professor ha- uh, Dobbins at um, at Harvard, uh, shows that most of these programs either don't work, or in the case of mandatory training, make the problem worse. They find that uh, institutions that impose mandatory mandatory training, um, the numbers of um, people of color, uh, particularly African-American and Asian women, the numbers actually go down after <laughs> like a year after uh, mandatory training because they, they, they uh, often stoke a backlash, uh, uh, particularly among white men who see it as punitive and, um, you know, sort of like a, a, a blaming game. And so they they trigger a lot of resentment. And yet most companies continue. That's like a default. You know, instead of actually increasing diversity, they do these programs and they hire these czars and they do everything but hire a more diverse workforce. So so one very fundamental issue is hiring, right? (laughs) That's that's (laughs) I mean, we, we, that's not, that part isn't rocket science. That, that's the novel idea that I came up with. Oh, you can actually hire more people of color, and then you'd have more diversity. Um, it, you know, it, I, I just find it kind of stunning that even in New York City, um, you know, I, I can go to so many events um, related to publishing or journalism, uh, or higher ed, where you can have a hundred people, and I would I could be the only African American in the room. These are such exclusive, <laughs> homogenous um, fields, and I don't think many even recognize the extent to which they're homogenous and, and, and exclusionary. And so I think we've somehow normalized. Um, you know, the lack of diversity to the point where having diversity is just so like, <laughs> like what? <laughs> like, I, I just don't think it's even considered something that you actually have to do. It's like easier to talk about it or to say that, you know, we're progressive. So like, why do we need diversity? Which I've heard, actually, I've heard someone in publishing say, well, we're, we're publishing these diverse books. So it's, it's not like it makes a difference. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is no. so interesting. Yeah. So these the the training programs are obviously failing because people are um, believing that they're doing a, um, due diligence when nothing's changing. It sounds like right, but it's it's like checking a box. It's like what um, one of the people I interviewed, uh, Cyrus Mary, who um, litigated. Uh, many of the landmark discrimination lawsuits, um, uh, one against Coca-Cola, and and um, basically he calls it drive-by diversity. You know, he's sort of like, do, you know, you do diligence, you, you have your training, you have your diversities are, check, check, you know, you do a climate survey, and then, you know, you did diversity instead of actually <laughs> implementing diversity. So do you think people are acting in bad faith here, that they are on one hand wanting diversity, but actually not really wanting diversity? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. You know, 
it's hard, you know, I, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, mm-hmm. and I haven't put people on the couch. I can only look at what is. Um, <laughs> but if you keep doing the same thing and it doesn't bear fruit and you keep doing it, it does it does lead me to question how serious you are about doing this thing. Um, if a company is not making money by doing something over and over that's that's not effective, usually they would change course because it's the bottom line, right? They, 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 they want to succeed. And I think the same is true. If you really want diversity, there are a number of successful models that you could begin to um, mimic, uh, but to keep doing the same thing that and, and not getting results, it, yeah, it, it does lead me to question the sincerity, the goodwill of, of those um, institutions. In the book, you give the following information about Google. They have spent upwards of $265 million dollars to diversify their workforce, and yet a the, year, a year. Oh my goodness, a year. Okay, and yet the average um, percentage of Black employees hovers at two percent. Now, right. if this was any other business, people would say, "Hmm, right, <laughs> this is not working." Exactly. Yeah, I just don't think there's a real incentive for many of these institutions to actually implement diversity because it would not be rocket science. I also. Pre- provide numbers showing how many um, people of color are graduating with degrees in computer science and engineering. Um, It's no longer, I mean, for, for many decades, the problem was the pipeline. But now the problem seems to be that <laughs> these people are not being hired at the same rate as, as, um, as others. So, um, and even if the problem was the pipeline, instead of spending millions each year or hundreds of millions each year on failed policies, why not spend that money on on um, increasing the pipeline through programs, training programs, um, you know, scholarships to engineering and computer science. But like there are other things you can do <laughs> if you actually wanted to increase diversity. Um, but to keep doing the same thing and expecting different results is either a sign of insanity or a sign of, of you know, you don't really – you're not really motivated to to move the needle. Can you talk a little bit about what the lack of motivation is coming from? I mean, obviously, it's affecting the bottom line, and it's costing companies, private companies, a lot of money, I imagine, um, public ones as well. Well, I don't know if it's affecting the bottom line to the extent. um, There had been studies... um, uh, I think for like about 10 years, it was kind of trendy to try to convince companies that diversity um, was good for the bottom line. And then other studies showed that it really doesn't change the bottom line. So that's sort of at a you know stalemate, whether or not it does or doesn't. Um, so without that as a motivating factor, you would just need, you know, basic um, – principles of justice and equality to to motivate you to do that. 
and and I, I so far we haven't seen where that is the operating principle of many of these institutions, and and, and usually what it takes is some kind of embarrassing episode. Um, you know, I, I wrote about how like it, it's almost like a dance where there's some public. Um, Embarrassment, like at Starbucks, you know, when um, uh, two African American customers were arrested for sitting down and trying to <laughs> have their coffee, and they ended up in handcuffs. And um, so, what do they do? They go and hire diversities are, and they make these public pronouncements. In Starbucks' case, they closed hundreds of stores to have a one-day training session, <laughs> and. So this is this is the dance. Gucci, they had an embarrassing episode. They did pretty much the same thing. They hired a high-profile diversity czar. They enlisted a, a famous um, uh, uh, black film director to be the face of the company. So this is what's done. It's like these public relations kind of ploys that operate as the answer to the lack of diversity instead of actually tackling the lack of diversity in the workforce. So I think um, too often diversity is seen less as a moral imperative or, you know, just a basic issue of fairness, and it's seen more as a public relations issue or as a legal issue. You know, something, you know, if if you have diversity czars and you have a diversity program, that might shield you from from a lawsuit, you know, from having to pay a lawsuit. So these kind of public... Um, uh, Actions um, are are what are how many institutions are operating instead of like really seriously tackling diversity in the workplace. Would it be fair to say that it's really about cleaning up or um, rehabilitating image rather than about making systemic changes? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. That they're more interested in. in and sort of the public relations aspect of diversity than they seem to be about actually increasing diversity in the workplace. And, you know, of course, this doesn't speak for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. I, I looked at uh, Columbia University where Lee Bollinger, the president, has made diversity a real priority for that institution. And even though there there have been, you know, um, you know, good years and bad years on this front, you can see that there's a real effort and the needle has moved. Um, you know, I looked at Coca-Cola, um, you know, after the discrimination lawsuit and settlement, they actually implemented systems that that created systemic change. Um, so there are models that as I say, can be replicated. This is not rocket science. It's not something that's just too difficult to conquer um, for those institutions that are really serious about this. They can look at those two cases and, and, and others where where the needle has moved. In the case of Coca-Cola and also Columbia, what were some of the things that they implemented that actually did make a difference? Well, I think, um, first of all, they didn't farm it out to diversity czars. It was it was um, integrated into the mainframe of the institution. Uh, oftentimes, you know, when 
institutions hire diversity czars and and they implement these programs, leadership is sort of like the, the, these these people in these programs are pretty much marginalized in the institution. They're not integrated into the core, into the mainframe of of the organization. Where at Coca Cola and um, at Columbia University, people had to answer to the top people. Um, so there was because, a system of accountability. Yes, there was accountability. It wasn't farmed out. It was like you know the buck stopped with um, the the head person, and, and it's the only way. Um, the, the, these issues are not going to happen bottom up. It, it it has to come from the top. You mentioned one other problem, which is with some of these. Um, companies that do diversity training, which you, you said that the space was flooded with people who are doing this work, but many of them don't put the work in a historical context. We're not good at knowing history, one person said. Right. Well, you know, that's part of it. It's like this work is done in a vacuum as if, um, you know, the the history of race in this country is immaterial to the work of diversity. It's like, <laughs> why do we even have this problem? And what you know, what what is it? What is it stemming from? Like we we have a country in which race has all, always operated um, either been you know under the radar or even on top of the radar, it's always been an issue in this country. And we go about this work of diversity as if that's not something that is systemic to it's the air we breathe, you know, these notions of uh, racial superiority, racial inferiority. So to have a training program, um, it, it's sort of um, – uh, it, it, it sort of like assumes that you can tackle something that's so systemic in our society through a one hour or two hour or even a full day <laughs> of mm-hmm. training. Mm-hmm. It's so much bigger than that. So while, you know, even if these training programs worked, that is not going to resolve the issue of diversity. Co- companies or institutions have to figure out ways to increase diversity, whether or not people are trained to respect people of other races or not. Like, how you feel about people in the workplace should not, uh, we, we shouldn't have to change racial attitudes in society in order to increase diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because discrimination, first of all, is against the law. <laughs> and secondly, if you really value diversity, you have to get you have to get beyond the issue of feelings, how people feel about different races. And and I I'm not convinced that these training programs could can actually really move the needle on racial attitudes. But with leadership, even with these racial attitudes, you can increase diversity. What would true diversity and inclusion in a workplace look like, in your opinion? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. So in a country that uh, where, where uh, people of color are close to 40% of the population, you have fields like higher ed, um, where African Americans are 
uh, 4% of university and college professors and Latinos are 3% (laughs) and that they're so disproportionately underrepresented. So we're talking about just acute underrepresentation. So while you may not get at proportional representation across the board in every field, certainly when you have that kind of acute underrepresentation, you have something is wrong, especially when you can show that you have a pipeline, you've had, you have, um, you know, a, a, a pool of people who are qualified for these jobs who are not getting them. So, you know, most most of the problems exist in the most elite fields because they're the ones that are most likely to function um, with systems of nepotism, um, smaller spheres of friendships, and, you know, it's it, so it's like this, this little... Um, this little world from which they're selecting and so it's a it's a self you know perpetuating kind of self-replicating kind of um, operation in corporate America many have anti-nepotism rules they have all kind of um, um, systems that prevent that kind of you know self-replication and um, so yeah you know, when we're looking at these fields like fashion, why why should fashion be so um, disproportionately white in a country where people of color are forty percent of the population, and I think they hold like eleven percent of of um, like board seats in in the fashion industry. So whether we're talking about creative fields scientific fields, no matter which way you slice it, people of color are just like like not part of the equation. Um, Hollywood, you know, so we're not only talking about um, uh, fields in which which require high levels of education. A lot of times we're talking about creative fields where people of color are still disproportionately underrepresented. So to your question, what does a, a diverse um, room or or field look like? You have to start by looking at the representation, the proportionality of those people, and and then look at how how represented they are in these in these fields. And so, when we're looking at so many fields, whether it's you know. Um, academia or publishing or, you know, you're looking across the board at fields where people of color are just so radically underrepresented. We're not even close to to uh, our representation in the population. You mentioned this, but I just want to highlight this, that we have plenty of people who are qualified, but they're not making it into through the hiring process. Right. And part of this, it seems from what you've been saying, is that institutions tend to hire people that they already know, which means that they're hiring within their social circle and also their cultural um, uh, Mm -hmm. values, right? So that's part of the problem in terms of... That's part of it. And then you add on to that just um uh impressions that 
that many whites have of African-Americans and Latinos that's baked into the psyche of this country based on centuries of demeaning depictions of people of color, both in history books and science, you know, all the, 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 the race science that up until the 1950s really was still pretty prevalent in, in you know, major um, uh, colleges and universities like Harvard and Princeton and Yale. Um, so this is like something that the, these ideas of uh, who and what people are based on race are so deeply embedded in our national, um, just the way we function, that until we begin to address that, and I, when I say we, you know, since institutions, the, the uh, higher ed, is responsible for so many of these ideas that still permeate you know, our our society, I think that's where some of the leadership has to begin to kind of dismantle the, uh, this ideology that has really gone unchallenged in a meaningful way. You said towards the end of your book, and I think this speaks to the point that you're that you're talking about now, you said racial diversity will only be achieved once white America is weaned off a prevailing narrative of racial preeminence, a belief system as intoxicating and addictive and ultimately destructive as any opiate. So it seems that this idea about white racial superiority is part Mm -hmm. of what really needs to be dismantled. I think so. And and I also think, like, why wouldn't that be a belief system based on everything we've seen in this country? Um, it you know, and as I said, th- these ideas did not percolate from the bottom up. They came from the top. They came from leading academics. You know, this it's enshrined in our in, in the academy. And you know, I don't think that. Uh, the leadership in most colleges and universities have seriously confronted the legacy of these pernicious um, beliefs that that operated as fact and as science. Um, I, I don't think that they've seriously confronted those ideas and begun to dismantle them. If anything, the silence has allowed um, that ideology to, to flourish. So it's both that ideology and also the cultural illiteracy that you also discuss about um, recognizing that there is a longstanding cultural context and a lot to to really understand about how we ended up where we are today, right? Right. I mean, you know, one of the privileges of being white in America is not having to seriously consider the legacy of of slavery, the legacy of, you know, Jim Crow laws and all of these um horrific systemic issues that people of color are still living with. And most white people don't have to consider those things. In fact, you know, until 
two, three years ago until Trump's election, many were insisting that we lived in a post-race society. At least now, most people are not not saying that anymore. I mean, we weren't post-race after Obama's election, and we're not post-race now. We've never truly overcome many of the systemic problems barriers uh, to to racial equality. So um, if there's one thing that has come um, from the last few years is is getting over that notion of being being post-race, because I think that kind of of blindness um, stands in the way of us actually confronting the problems in front of us. So we need to start by actually seeing what the problem is rather than denying it. Yeah, there's a lot of denial. Mm -hmm. There's so much denial. And, you know, when people hear, you know, one way to um, clear a room is to say either diversity or (laughs) or to start talking about, like, our racial issues. I mean, there's, there's just not much of an appetite for really tackling these issues. And I and I think a lot of people think, oh, we've talked about that so long that we're over that. Even if the problem is not over, people are sick of talking about it. Having done all of this research about diversity programs and how they generally don't work, what would you say are, I mean, do you have any takeaways as to, and we've talked about some of, of these things, but... Is there any kind of new direction that you see possible for us to move in? Well, as I say, you know, part of the reason for writing this book is because I got tired of people acting as if this is rocket science. Mm -hmm. So it's a small book, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not a whole lot of pages. And you can read it pretty quickly and see that there are actual things you can do if you are serious about advancing, um, you know, diversity uh, in, in your organization. So, yeah, all of the hand-wringing and the, and the you know, the sighing, and the <laughs> it, it's unnecessary. I mean, we can actually move the needle on this. And so for those who, act, who, are, who are serious about it, there, there's much to be done, um, that, that there are things that work. Um, so, you know, and of course, it, there's no one size fits all. But what I tried to do is is present some of the some of the measures that that have been tried and tried and tried for decades that have failed, and then some of the the things that work. And also getting you know underneath the hood of the problem, like looking at sort of the systemic cultural issues that are standing in the way. Because I think, I think for a lot of individuals who, who may be acting in good faith, they don't see how their actions are actually perpetuating the problem instead of addressing or helping the problem. So, yeah, so I, I just think that first you have to be honest with yourself about what may be standing in the way of 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 moving the needle on this. And, you know, this was my one little attempt to have a honest conversation about something that 
we've talked about for so long. Today I have been speaking with Professor Pamela Newkirk, who is an award-winning journalist, professor at New York University, and the author of the recently published book, Diversity, Inc., The Failed Promise of a Billion-Dollar Business. Thanks so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. I am Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Get up, get up. Mm-hmm. 